The following audio is from the Grove Church Snohomish campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Oh, hey, how's it going? That song gets stuck in my head all the time. And one of the, uh, the unfortunate parts of uh, being the, the media, I think producer is my official title, is I watch a bumper like 50 times before it gets played. And so I'll walk around whistling like just random tunes that no one knows about. So, you know, I, that's the sacrifice that I make. Uh, for you. So just, you know, if you want to keep that in mind at some point, that would be awesome. But uh, I just want to say first off, um, Andrew, thank you for all the kind words. So that was, that was very much appreciated. I love you, man. And, uh, and you definitely played more than, than a small part in, uh, in my development. And it's just, it's a ton of fun to be able to be here in Snohomish. I said this last time, but there really is such an incredible feeling here of uh, being surrounded by a group of people who are passionate about spreading the gospel, who are passionate about the work of Jesus. And uh, mostly I'm at the Marysville campus, but we're definitely praying for you uh, that God would continue to use you guys to be able to change this city and to be able to show God's love uh, to people who have never experienced it. So we are praying. We love you guys. Um, And I'm just going to pray really quick and then we'll we'll jump in. Father, I thank you so much for just giving us the opportunity to gather here together and to learn more about you, to learn more about your love, to learn more about the Bible. And I pray that today, uh, that when I speak, I would speak your words, not my own. I pray that you would help me be more eloquent than I'm capable of being. And I pray that you would allow all of us together to learn more about your truth, to learn more about your grace, your love, and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. So when Andrew uh, invited me back to speak, first off, it was the first time I've been invited back to speak in some place, so that was really exciting, so yes! Um, and the second thing, you know, he, he gave me the topic, and my first reaction to it was kind of like, okay, that's a heavy one, but we, we, can, we can do that. Um, and, and the more I was studying for the message, the more I was preparing for it, the more excited I became to really take a topic that I think most of the time we have a tendency to view in a negative light and really talk about how it is one of the most precious gifts that God gives us. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I'm kind of spoiling the end of the message there. But uh, today we're going to talk about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So what it means for the Holy Spirit to convict us. But before we uh, get started into that today, I actually wanted to take a moment and look at the history of conviction all throughout the Bible. So we are in a series on the book of Acts, and we're going to land in the book of Acts. But I think uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, or I guess more broadly, the conviction of sin is a theme all throughout the Bible, not just in the New Testament. And one of the opportunities I get to be here at the Grove Church is I get to host uh, one of the podcasts called Let's Read the Bible with Connor O'Brien. And so... Uh, it's weekly. You can find it on the website, grove.church. So there's my shameless plug. Check it out. Um, but when we were studying, we had an episode where uh, as we were going through the Bible, we were jumping out of Exodus into Leviticus. We were in Psalm 119. We were in the part of Romans that really talks about um, what is our response today as Christians, as modern Christians to the law of the Old Testament. And so the, the, the whole topic that we were discussing was really the law and how it fits into our lives. And and one of the most convicting um, verses of the Bible, when it's read correctly, is actually Psalm 119.11, which says this, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And today we use that verse to mean I hold on to the Bible. I hold on to the grace and the truth of God. I hold on to the saving work of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Those are incredible things, and that's not a wrong interpretation of the verse. But when you're actually looking into it and kind of like, what's going on? 
you realize that most likely the writer of this psalm probably only had access to the first five books of the Bible, or at the very least, the very early books of the Bible. So when the psalm is being written, he's not talking about the Gospels, he's not talking about the Epistles, he's not even talking about most of the prophetic books, but really he's talking about the section of the Bible that we would refer to as the law. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those books. And if you've ever done um, a Bible reading plan, which I would encourage everyone to do, every year as a church we actually read through the whole Bible in a year, it's kind of a stereotype of Bible reading plans that you start strong in Genesis, you get through Exodus because all those books are narrative, it's story, it's pretty easy to read, and then you get to Leviticus and that's where like, you know, I think half, pe- half of the people drop off, right, in Leviticus. And the reason for that is because it's hard to read, right? Like it's a whole section about holidays and what the different sacrifices should be, uh, what constitutes sin, what's the punishment for that sin. Like it's a very long book that is very much concerned with the holiness of God and how we don't necessarily measure up to it. So not necessarily a fun read, uh, but it is an incredibly important book of the Bible. But then when we read in the Psalms and he says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, what we realize is the psalmist here is holding on to Leviticus. And I would wager that for many of us, when we talk about the books of the Bible that we appreciate, we're not like Leviticus, yes. <laughs> Numbers, Deuteronomy, give me more, God. And yet here is what we see. In fact, if we look all throughout the Psalms, we see verse after verse after verse that is praising the word of God, that is praising the law of God. It says it's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It talks about it as being this incredible gift. And in Psalms 1, 1 through 3, it actually says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We get all throughout the book of Psalms, and really all throughout the Old Testament, this idea that the law, the rules, that those things are a gift from God. And one of my favorite stories is actually the story of King Josiah. And King Josiah uh, is one of the youngest, I believe he's the youngest king in the history of Judah. He becomes king at a very young age. And one day a scribe comes to him with the law, with the first five books of the Bible. And because Judah had a history of really evil kings, they hadn't really, they pretty much just put away the law and hadn't uh, talked about it for years. And Josiah reads it. And it talks about how he's cut to the heart and how he's convicted not only for his own sin, but the sin of his people. And he actually turns around the entire nation because of the conviction of sin from reading the law. And if you look at lists of, you know, good kings of Judah and bad kings of Judah, like they're all bad except for four. And Josiah is one of the four and he gets to the very top. And it's because not only did he receive the conviction of his sin, but he also listened to the conviction of his sin. Fast forward a few centuries, we're going to get into the book of John and We're going to talk more about the Holy Spirit and his role in the conviction of sin. Jesus in the book of John, and one of the special things about the book of John is you can really divide it in half, and half of the book takes place in the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And so you kind of get this... um, 
this importance of last words, if it were. Like in our culture, we really value what someone's last words were. Like if you're dying, you're taking very special attention to the things that you're saying to individual people. You want to make sure that it's words of love. You want to make sure it's all these different things. And so in the book of John, we're getting Jesus' last words as he's pulling aside groups of people, mostly his disciples, and he's sharing with them incredible truths and important things that he wants them to remember. And in John chapter 16, he actually starts to share why it's important for him to leave. Because the disciples don't get it. And to be honest, if I was a disciple in that moment, I wouldn't get it either. If Jesus was telling me, hey, this has been awesome, but I'm peacing out here in a little bit, and the Holy Spirit's going to come, you're just like, well, why can't you just stay, Jesus? And Jesus goes on to actually explain, explain this in chapter 16. He says, starting in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world, there's that word, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so Jesus here in this moment is not only telling his disciples one of the, really the reason why it's important for him to go and the Holy Spirit to come, but also he's telling them some of the work that the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish. Namely, first, he's going to convict the world of sin. He's going to show the world their sin. Number two, he's going to show them what true righteousness looks like. And finally, he's going to show them the judgment that is one day coming. And the word conviction can actually be kind of confusing. When I was looking it up, uh, as I was preparing for the message in the English dictionary, the very first thing that comes up is this idea of being convicted because of a crime. And I would guess, you know, take church ease out of it for a moment. When we use the word conviction outside of church, that's probably what we most likely use it for. We see someone being convicted for a crime that they commit. We know of convicts, which are people who have been convicted of a crime that they committed. Those are the, the, really the messages that come to our minds when we talk about the word conviction. And it's really easy to kind of fall into that line. Like, well, obviously the work of the Holy Spirit is to show people how they've fallen guilty and then to condemn them for that sin. If we only operated off of that word, it would be really easy to assume that that's what's going on. But when you jump in a little bit deeper into what's going on here, here's what we're going to learn. So if, if you don't know, the, the original Bible was not written in English. Uh, so, you know, sorry, spoilers. But uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in mostly in Greek. There's some Aramaic sprinkled in there. And so the word that we have translated as conviction is this Greek word, elegko. And I know what you're thinking. Did I pronounce it correctly? And I looked it up like five times and had someone say it. So I'm pretty sure it's right. But eleg, dang it, elegko is, I think, how you say it. But when you look up this word, the very first definition that comes up is this. It's to expose or to show fault. Alegco is this idea to expose and to show fault. And that may seem like a really kind of semantic, slightly semantic difference between conviction and what the word is really talking about. But here's the difference that it creates, and it's a powerful difference in our lives. It's the difference between showing someone how they have fallen short and condemning someone to hell because of how they have fallen short. The idea of the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not a sentencing idea, but rather it is this idea that the work of the Holy Spirit is to expose us to our own sin. 
I love in John chapter 1, verses, verse 14, it talks about Jesus coming and it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I think that sometimes we can treat grace and truth like they're, they're two things at the opposite end of a spectrum, right? Like, well, you can't be too much grace and you can't be too much truth. But really, it's talking about not that these things are opposite, but that they're both. And the idea is that Jesus comes, you know, we'll talk about first with truth, right? Jesus is not shy about calling sin, sin. Jesus is not shy about showing people how they've fallen short. In fact, people come up to him over and over and over again, and almost always that conversation involves a way that that person, or at least the group at large, have sinned. But Jesus also comes with grace. And in fact, if you read through the Gospels and you look at Jesus' interaction with sinners, with the exception of a couple with the Pharisees, all of them are followed not just by exposing them to their own sin, but also by offering them grace. There's always an offer of grace that's in there. And I would encourage us today, I think sometimes we can become really passionate about truth and we kind of just leave grace behind. We can become really passionate about maybe showing people where they fall short or just declaring sin is sin, but then we forget that that's not the full calling of what God asks us to do. God asks us to come in grace and truth. And I would say if, if you ever are in a conversation with someone and your heart is anything other than love for them, if your heart is just to simply show them why they're wrong, if your heart is simply to prove yourself right, then just don't have the conversation. It's not worth it. Nothing good comes from that. Jesus comes in grace and truth. And as Christians, we are called to show both grace and truth. So now a few years later, not even a few years later, a few months later down the timeline, we get to the book of Acts and we get to the story of Pentecost. And Pentecost is one of the most incredible stories that we have in the Bible. You know, the book of Acts opens up with Jesus leaving. He tells his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to arrive. The disciples go. And then there's this incredible moment with big gusts of wind, tongues of fire appear over the disciples' heads, and they begin to speak in languages that they'd never learned before. And they go outside. And what's happening outside in Jerusalem, I believe it's the Festival of Booths, but it's one of the Jewish festivals. So people are coming from all around, all different cultures, a bunch of different nations, and they're hearing the gospel preached to them in their own language. It's a miraculous thing because they're wondering, how on earth are these guys from Jerusalem able to speak my native tongue? And it's in this moment that Peter steps out and he actually goes into this group of thousands of people and he preaches one of the most powerful sermons that we have. And I think one of the mistakes that we can make as we read the Bible is we can kind of skip over... We can skip over parts of the Bible and not actually put ourselves into the situation that these people are experiencing. Remember that Peter is the disciple who a few months earlier denied Christ three times. In fact, he was so ashamed of that, the Bible talks about how he just went back to being a fisherman. He had no intention ever again of being a disciple of Jesus because he was so ashamed of that sin. And then Jesus finds him and he forgives him. And in fact, in one of the most beautiful moments of really echoing in the Bible, Jesus forgives him three times. He says, if you love me, then feed my sheep. And he repeats it two more times so that Peter knows he understands what happened. Peter is shown over and over again, particularly in the Gospels, to be kind of a coward and a little bit of a moron, which is, you know, most of the disciples are. Which, as, as a side note, one of the most 
encouraging things about the Bible is if you think it's fake and made up by the disciples, there's really no reason that they would make themselves out to be idiots. But they, but they do. And most likely it's because that's the truth. But in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 35, I want to read a little snippet of Peter's sermon. And he starts off with this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore his heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwells in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made it known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Then Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so what Peter's talking about there is he's systematically showing this group of people who are very familiar with the history of Israel how Jesus is not just a teacher or a rabbi, but he really is the Son of God. And he says, you know, Jesus is the promised Messiah, the promised king that God told to David. Because David himself died and he's buried. And Peter's saying, David can't rule forever. David's dead. His tomb is right over there. We're aware of this. But David prophesied that one day there would come someone who was greater. And Peter is telling the people, Jesus is the person that David is talking about. And then he says, Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Or in other words, Jesus did not stay in the grave. Jesus is alive, and you all know that. He's talking to this crowd. He's like, you can't explain that away. His tomb was empty. There was was thousands of pounds of rock in front of it. I didn't move it. Jesus didn't stay there for three days and basically not starve to death and then get out and somehow escape. You cannot explain why Jesus is not here. He is risen, and you are all very much aware of that. Peter is standing up in front of this crowd, and he's being incredibly, incredibly brave and talking about the gospel. And then he really puts an exclamation on it in verse 36 when he says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he stands up and he shows the crowd how Jesus is the Son of God. And then he says, And you killed him. 
Again, put yourself into the situation that he's saying. He's in front of a group of thousands of people and he's accusing them of the most heinous crime he can accuse them of. He's saying that you killed the Messiah. You killed the one that God sent. And it would have been very easy for Peter to stop there and just walk away and be mad. It would have been very easy for Peter to stand up in front of this crowd and say, I told you so. And we told you guys he was special. We told you he was the son of God and you didn't listen, shove it, and then just walk away. But that's not what happened. And the people react, and here's where we see one of the first instances of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. There's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Or in other words, Peter stands in front of this crowd, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he exposes them to their sin. The crowd was probably not very much aware of what had happened. At the very worst, they thought maybe they helped an innocent man be punished for a crime he didn't commit. But then Peter walks through. Now, this isn't just a man who was punished for a crime he didn't commit. This isn't some rebel that Rome had to put down. But rather, this is the Son of God. He exposes them to their sin. And the people react with the proper mature Christian reaction to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Namely this, they they repent. And our proper reaction, our right reaction to the conviction of the Holy Spirit is repentance. When we experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it's a call for us to be able to turn away from what we're doing and turn back into alignment with God. And I'll tell you, for years, I hated conviction. And, and I'm not perfect by any means. Like, there's still times where I hate it, but... It, it, it clicked with me at, at one point. There's, there's a verse in the Bible in, in Proverbs, and to paraphrase, it talks about how um, parents only discipline children who they, who they love. Like, if you don't care about your kid, you're never going to discipline them, right? Only good parents discipline their kids. And, and I, I realized that the conviction of the Holy Spirit, or in other words, that inner feeling of conscience or when someone is led to really expose you to your sin is not evidence that you don't deserve God's love, but rather it's evidence that you have it. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is evidence that God loves you so much that he wants what's best for you. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit does two things for the believer today. It shows us how to live a more Christ-like life, and it reminds us of how much we need the grace of God. So I'm going to wrap up today just talking about those two things. 
First, the conviction of the Holy Spirit shows us how to live a more Christ-life-like, or to put it another way, the conviction of the Holy Spirit helps us realign our lives to be more in tune with the example of Christ. And one of the, uh, when I was thinking about just my, my personal story and, and kind of conviction in that sense, one of the stories that leaps to mind um, is, it happened when I was in high school. And the reason it leaps to mind is because it's one of the most clear um, experiences that I've had with conviction. And also by the grace of God, um, I was able to basically immediately react with the, with the right reaction, which is repentance. But I was sitting around uh, with my friends. I was probably 17, 16, 17, however old I was. And we were just talking about girls, right? And we were talking about girls in a way that too often young men do. Um, and we were talking about how hot they were. Or, and basically, it was, based, it was talking about just purely in terms of physical appearance and what it is. And I remember one time I walked away from one of those conversations and then it was almost not audible, but it was just this real pressing in my spirit. And I just heard, you know, you know, those are my daughters, right? And it was in that moment, it was really this experience of being cut to the heart like it talks about in the book of Acts where I was just like, oh my goodness. Like here I am talking about my friends. Here I am talking about people who I care about in just a really degrading way. And I had to, in that moment, say, God, I'm so sorry. I repent. Will you please help me to change what I'm doing? Will you help me to align my life more with the example of Christ? And through that experience and through a lot more, you know, that wasn't my first and it's definitely not my last experience of being exposed to my own own sin, but I've learned to be able to, when I really step back and think about it, react with gratitude when I experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because what it does is it allows me to be a better person. It allows me to line myself up more with who Christ is. And life is better. One of the things I think we don't talk about nearly enough when it comes to uh, sin and repentance is that when you live according to the way that God would have you live, you experience life in a much better way. You experience a deeper happiness. You experience a deeper pleasure of life because there's not this idea where you're kind of shoving away sin in the background, but you know, God, I'm trying my hardest. I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to line my life up with you. And the second thing, and this is what I want to end on, the conviction of the Holy Spirit reminds us how much we need the grace of God. And I think one of the most dangerous things that we can do as Christians is we can kind of get to the point, if we've been saved for a while, if we've been in the church for a while, where we feel like, you know, that's, that's baby stuff. You know, I got, I got it, like the gospel, grace of God, that's all awesome, but I'm going to go work on other things now. I'm going to stop watching rated R movies, well, you know, whatever it is. And conviction reminds us how much we need to rely on God's grace. Because here's what happens. We get exposed to our sin. And if we're mature Christians who are moving forward, a lot of times the exposure to sin is not a pleasant thing because it's something probably that's been in our lives for years that we didn't view as sin. And one of the most loving things that God can do is rip open the curtain and force you to look face to face with your own sin, with your own depravity. And then we'll probably have that Isaiah 6 moment, right? Like, oh God, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. What am I supposed to do? We get cut to the heart because of our sin. And all of a sudden we have to wrestle with the fact like, I'm not good enough. I can't save myself. This whole lie that I've built up where I'm awesome and I don't sin and people should look up to me. It's not true. But then here's what happens after that. God can say, you're right. 
and that's why you need me. And how wonderful is it that our salvation does not depend on our ability to be perfect, but rather it depends on the finished work of Jesus. Conviction is God's way of forcing us to remember that. Conviction is God's way of stripping away our layers of pride. It's God's way of stripping away any hint that we can satisfy our own need for salvation. It forces us to look back to Jesus and to say, God, I don't have it all figured out. You're right. This is an area of my life where I've fallen short. Please help me to line up more with your example and what you, the life you would have me live. And God, thank you so much that my salvation, that, my, that your love for me, that your forgiveness for me, that your grace for me does not depend on what I do, but rather it depends on what Jesus has already done. Thank God for conviction. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the gift that you have given us, for the love that you show us by helping us to not just live life however we would want to, but I, I thank you so much that you show us the right way. I pray for all of us here in this room that as we experience your conviction, that as we are exposed to our own sin or as we are shown false, that we wouldn't run away from you, that we wouldn't be scared of it, that we wouldn't be angry about it, but God, I pray that we would respond in gratitude. And I pray that we would respond with the right Christian response, which is repentance. And I pray that we would be able to realign our lives to your example. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Snohomish Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.